I'd like to explore with you four ways of practicing, uh, also four places to practice. And they're summarized in four words. The four words are nowness, wholeness, allness, and oneness. And these are aspects of practice uh, for which neuroscience, in my view, actually has something to contribute. There's a lot of uh, stuff in neuroscience, uh, modern brain science, that's cool, uh, but not very useful. And this is a material that I think is potentially really quite useful. It certainly has been so for me. And... uh, as you'll see, uh, this is stuff that's right in, under our nose all the time. On the other hand, it could seem a little advanced. And Anushka prodded me to do this. Uh, she said, yeah, we need more of this kind of stuff. So if it falls flat, it's your fault. <laughs> so here we go. <clears throat> right under our noses all the time in terms of now. It's this extraordinary mystery. What is now? I've asked philosophers, I've asked scientists, I've never been able to get a good, que- good answer to this question. And it's clear, seemingly, that now, in terms of time, is infinitesimally skinny or thin. And yet, it seems to contain everything that exists now, continuously. As Anushka said last night, that which is past is no longer existent, as best we can tell. Uh, That which is yet to come does not yet exist. Everything that exists is now. Now, the subjective now, because the brain has loops in it, the nervous system generally, that allows it to keep things going recursively. The subjective now tends to be experienced as roughly a second or two long, maybe a second, second and a half long. So if you will, imagine that the subjective now is like a little windshield, one second or so thick. And uh, time streaming through you or you're moving through time in the windshield, the front edge of consciousness. And many practices are about being here now. The power of now, I believe it was Wes, I think, who offered the quotation from the Buddha, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and thus come to the unconditioned, the ultimate freedom, which I'll be exploring when I get to oneness, the fourth of my themes tonight. Uh, So many practices are about this, and uh, I'll quote you a couple in a moment. And what's interesting is that neuroscience has some suggestions for us about how to more and more uh, steadily and uh, consistently and and profoundly be here now. So the first quotation is from uh, the great Zen master, Suzuki Roshi. And he's speaking of Zazen, a particular form of meditation, very much about resting in the present moment, uh, sometimes referred to as just sitting, shikantaza. Uh, an aspect of Zen practice. He says, in Zazen, 
we do not try to stop thinking or cut off hearing and seeing. If something appears in your mind, leave it. If you hear something, hear it and just accept it. Oh, that is all. No second activity should appear in your zazen. Sound is one activity. The second activity is, what is that sound? Is it a motor car or garbage truck or something? Or as someone offered, a 57 Chevy. If you hear sound, that is all. You hear it. Don't make any judgment. Don't try to figure out what it is. Just open your ears and hear something. Just open your eyes and see something. It's encouragement to do that practice just at the leading edge of now, the front edge of the windshield of consciousness. It's interesting that in the discussion of the aggregates, uh, the five aggregates uh, in Buddhism, sometimes called the five heaps that are a way of deconstructing uh, experience, phenomenology. Uh, The five are form, the barest apprehension of reality or the barest uh, beginning of an experience, as well as all of materiality. That's the form aggregate. And then in the sequence that's given, typically it's followed by the feeling aggregate, or we would say in psychology, the hedonic tone of experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So form is something happens. Don't know where it is. Don't know what it is. Don't know if it's friend or foe. Eat it or don't let it eat me. Something has happened. Then comes the feeling tone. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Do I like it? Do I dislike it? What do I do about it? And then on the heels of that comes the perception aggregate, the categorizing or sorting of what it is into some meaning or another, often drawing upon memory. And then comes the so-called formations or volitional formations, uh, pretty much the rest of mental contents of all kinds, as well as um, sort of continuously the aggregate of awareness or consciousness. It's interesting that in that sequence, the perception aggregate, the labeling, the meaning, comes after the primal urgency of do I eat it or does it eat me or should I just ignore it? You know, jump first, label later, right? And um, in our practice, uh, sure, there's a place for knowing whether we like something or dislike it, or is it pleasant or unpleasant, uh, or heartfelt or neutral. There's a place for sorting, categorizing, knowing what it is, comprehending clearly what things are. But it's also possible to just kind of hang out at the front edge of the moment, continually letting go. As Suzuki Roshi says elsewhere, letting go, enlightenment is letting go of this moment while growing into the next one. What's that like? This is where um, some information from neuroscience might have some practical benefit. As we are mindful, we are attentive. We're paying attention. There's a lot of research on attention, how attention works. And in our neuropsychology, attention seems to have three aspects, which you can relate to in your own experience. The first aspect is alerting. It's the first step. It's like a three-step process, continuously, in that first second and a half of the present moment in our experience. So the first function is alerting, and there's a neural network that supports it. Something has happened. 
there's a sound there, or there's a stimulus. I don't even know what it is. I'm not sure what it is. I definitely don't know what to do about it in the first quarter of a second, but something has happened. That's the alerting function, which is continuously operating at that front edge of the windshield of consciousness. Things are landing, coming up from inside us, thoughts, sensations, coming out from the outside, at us, from the environment. Something has happened. That's the alerting function of consciousness. And strengthening those neural networks have various benefits, which I'll get to in a bit, particularly when I get to allness, uh, and through repetition, through training, through practice. Uh, Since neurons that fire together wire together, the more seconds uh, we can hang out at that leading edge, hanging out with just alerting, things are happening, letting go, things are happening, letting go, we strengthen those neural networks. There's the advice from, I believe, Guru Rinpoche in Tibetan Buddhism. It's a very simple four-fold practice. Let go of the past, let go of the future, abide in the present, leave your mind alone. That's the sense of that. There are many benefits to just being right here at the leading edge. For one, a lot of trouble, a lot of suffering, and selfing, and the two together, happens kind of downstream, right? When we start thinking about things, reifying them, turning them into things, um, getting attached to it, making a deal out of it, getting kind of pulled out of the present moment, lost in thought. There's, I think Anushka quoted, uh, studies that on average, uh, when you ping people uh, in their smartphone and ask them, in this moment, are you in the present or is your mind wandering? For the average person, 50% of the time their mind is wandering. And those, that rumination is usually negative on average for most people. And uh, you know, ruminative neurons that are firing together are also wiring together. You know, embedding and encoding that neg- those negative ruminations, those negative preoccupations into the fabric of our brain and therefore our being and our life. A lot of benefit in being able to come out of the past, you know, not pre- be preoccupied with the future, and at least when it's appropriate. There's a place for reflection. There's a place for thinking about the past, planning the future. But if you want to, volitionally, like on this, kind of, on this retreat or things like it, Can you hang out at the front edge of the windshield of consciousness, practicing nowness again and again and again? As soon as you think about now, you're out of now. So to some extent, it helps to sort of think about it and then go back into now. And then you realize, I'm out of now. Maybe there's some learning there about gently cultivating factors around now that support being in now. Because if you're cultivating factors to be in now, you're not in now. But you kind of need to do that. So then now you're a now, and you're forgetting you're a now, and that's when you know you're a now. But of course, as soon as you know you're a now, you're not a now. But anyway, you're kind of hanging out a now. All right, got that? Good. On to wholeness. So wholeness, what do I mean by that? Studies show that when people are caught up in self-referential preoccupations, how am I doing, what do they think about me, Um, 
why did I get a one-star review on Amazon? Um, you know, what should I do when I get home about that? Trying out different, you know, if I say this, it might go well. If I say that, whoa, it never goes well when I do that. You know, all those little mini-movies. When we're involved in the mini-movies, I call it in the simulator, we, tend, we are engaged in what's called the default network, which basically has to do with the midline of the cortex, some little related, you know, headquarters off to the side. That's more or less the default network, but it's very midline. And then on the other hand, if we're caught up in doing, planning, working, driving, you know, thinking hard about something, banging on it, mm, uh, we tend to activate the midline networks, but more toward the front. Okay, there's a place for some of that, sort of the doing mode. But if you ask people to, hey, just sort of be mindfully aware of what's happening in your experience without getting caught up in it, without judging it, without having to go to work about it without solving any problems, just you know, mindful, open awareness. People activate networks on the sides of their brain, especially the right side for most people who are right-handed and roughly half of all lefties. And those lateral side activations are associated with much less sense of self as a subject, also much less sense of self as an object, the distinction roughly between the sense of I and the sense of me. Also, there's less judging and evaluating. Also, less stressing, uh, less abstracting, less getting lost in thought. It's a pretty nice place to go. Now, both capacities are important. You could say this is about doing. You could say the sides are more about being. It's no surprise that uh, lateral activation is mainly on the right hemisphere of the brain, which for right-handed people, roughly half of all left-handed people, Uh, is specialized for holistic gestalt processing. That's why it's very involved in imagery. The left hemisphere does sequential processing, thus it gets very involved in motor planning and language, because language is sequential, mainly. So when we go out to these lateral networks on the sides, we tend to get more of a sense of experience as a whole, the moment as a whole, life as a whole, reality as a whole. And... That has many benefits, right? Most of us, me included, need to get better at being because we're already pretty good at doing. Daily life in this culture is a training in doing. Kids drop into conventional first grades. They're trained in midline network activation. And when you stimulate those circuits, you strengthen them. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So uh, some people... Our son, at one point, definitely needed to improve the doing mode so he didn't have to stay in college an extra semester because he failed to submit a form on time to the registrar. Please get it together for us. But uh, most of us, me included, you know, it's helpful to get better at being. That's the weak suit. We've got an overdeveloped bicep, kind of like Popeye or what? He had huge forearms, I think, but anyway. been an underdeveloped tricep, the being mode, the being muscles. That's where the opportunity is for most of us and for many of the people we help, if we're in a helping profession. So how to do that? Um, There are several ways, and I want to just uh, offer to you two methods that have been very helpful to me, and which have profound implications, actually. One is to deliberately expand the sense, the awareness of sensation in the body, to a larger and larger field, or gestalt. By doing that, we naturally activate these lateral networks. 
and by stimulating and strengthening them, we're more able to rest in open, spacious awareness, you know, choiceless awareness even. So you could try it. Being aware of the sensations of breathing, pick an area of some size. I start with something roughly a few inches in diameter in the center of my torso. And then I start exploring what's it like to experience the sensations of breathing as a whole across a wider and wider area. The torso, including the belly, the throat, however you like, the back, it'll crumble. Then you'll suddenly be focused on one sensation after another, one part of the experience, the bodily experience of breathing after another. But then you go back to, okay, be with the whole. It's like widening, widening the spotlight of awareness, of attention rather, to include more and more of the whole stage of awareness. The little practice, you come to the torso as a whole, feelings in the shoulders, even the neck and head as the chest rises and falls, sensation in the hip, the knees, the lower legs, the feet. You can do it right now. It's very stress-reducing when the in-laws come over. You know the line, you think you're so enlightened, go home for the holidays. You know? So there you are, you just chilled out. You can still function, still think, but there's a sense of your body as a whole. And from there, you can go out to experience as a whole. Start including sounds, thoughts, emotion. By the way, for those of you that have some background in what are called the jhana factors, these five factors of contemplative absorption, I think of what I'm talking about here as supportive of the development of the fifth of those factors, ekagata, sometimes called unification of consciousness or singleness of mind. Everything, thunk, present, all known at once. Every aspect of experience, all known together as a single unified gestalt, moment after moment after moment. There are other ways to train the lateral networks. Not knowing is a good one. Not knowing also supports hanging out in nowness. And again, you can start to see why, from a neurological standpoint, traditional practices work. You know, I'm not making this up myself. I'm not inventing anything here. I'm tracking some major, four major headlines. A practice with a neuropsychological account, with an account grounded in life, with some practical implications that we can draw upon. So when you go out to your experience as a whole, something really powerful and interesting becomes available. In addition to supporting these lateral networks, when you start to take mind as a whole, the mind process, or more exactly experience as a whole, including the aspect of awareness, and including the sense of subjectivity or the observer, the witness, the seer, the knower. You just take all that as one unified gestalt, one process. Suddenly, there's no problem. Because if you look at it, the dynamics of craving and thus suffering are always about parts struggling with parts inside the whole of mind, moment to moment. The whole of phenomenology, the whole of experience, moment to moment. So you see the cookie, perceptorize 
right? Or you imagine the cookie. Boy, when I get down to dinner, there's going to be a cookie. Or I've brought my cookies. Tonight I deserve a cookie. Okay, so whatever. You see, cookie. That's part, right? It's in the field of awareness. It's not the totality. It's part. Then there's wanting the cookie. All right? That's the second part. Then there's no bad yogi, no cookies for you. You know, third part. Then there's another part, channeling Sharon Salzberg's voice. It's all right, sweetie. Have compassion for yourself. You deserve a cookie. <laughs> Suddenly now, you know, you, trust me, you don't, you know, it's not like multiple things, personalities, okay, etc. It's very normal, but it's tar- parts tussling with parts. See? It's the structural nature of suffering is parts tussling with parts. You know, there is a pain in the knee. That's just pain. It's not yet suffering. You know, I hate the pain. I'm, you know, it's my fault there's pain. Why don't I get more help for the pain? You know, uh, why don't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Uh, What am I going to do about the pain? Those are parts interacting with each other. But it's interesting, when you go out to experience as a whole, bingo, there's no problem there. That's going all the way out to wholeness. And you start to, it gets more and more accessible too when you go out to wholeness to recognize the nature of phenomenology, the nature of experience. My view, Buddhism is very much, it's to some small extent it's about content, mainly it's about the nature of content. Sounds arise, thoughts arise, um, grasping arises, aversion arises, various forms of content. But what's the nature of those experiences, of all experience, all experience, including um, the sense of I? The nature of all that, in the technical sense, is empty, which means it's transient. All experiences certainly are transient. Um, It's compounded. You can keep deconstructing it down. It's hard to find a center. It doesn't have an essence. It arises due to causes passes away due to causes, and it's insubstantial, it's foamy. And therefore, by its nature, uh, it's an unreliable basis for lasting happiness. And it's both doomed and painful to keep trying to clutch at it and hold on to it as it streams on by. So there's an opportunity as we recognize experience as a whole, mind as a whole, to see it's kind of shimmering, insubstantial, no problem nature. And that's a powerful opportunity. Okay? We're only halfway there. Allness. Here I'm going to draw on the work of... Uh, the, there's, by the way, the neuroscience I talked about, about midline activation versus lateral network. If you're interested in that stuff, a major researcher is Norm Farb, F-A-R-B. And you can, there's a... A lot of work being done on this right now and has lots of practical implications. And studies show, by the way, that in just eight weeks of an MBSR-like training, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, people who in the beginning could not stabilize lateral mode activation. They were, you know, typical, um, kind of like on meditation, breath, breath, milk, shopping list. We need more money. My partner needs to make more money. Breath, breath, you know, like that. Well, P- 
people in the beginning of the training could not sustain lateral mode activation. They would be instructed to do things, just do, just be with what's there, etc. They could do it for a second or two or ten. That was it. But at the end of the training, they could stabilize activation in the lateral mode, which, by the way, is the benefit due to what's called reciprocal inhibition. It's like a seesaw. As you strengthen this lateral mode activation, it inhibits midline activity, which tends to feel often stressful, straining, or spinning out in the simulator, in one mini-movie or another. Okay? All right. So, allness. This draws on the work of a neurologist who's a Zen practitioner, James Austin. And um, basically asked the question, why is it in Zen that most of the historical examples of people who experience Kensho or Satori do not involve formal practice? And why do many of them involve being out in nature and or surprise? And in many cases, their eyes lifted at least to the horizon line, if not to the heavens. And you find references to that in other traditions as well, including sky gazing, uh, literally or figuratively. So in the brain, there's this constant oscillation rhythm especially in perceptual processing, between what are what's called an egocentric perspective, not like you're selfish or conceited, more self-referential. It's from my view. You know, it's about it's it's like what's important to me, what ma- what would matter in what I'm perceiving to me. And then there's a rhythm moving into what's called an allocentric perspective, where we take things as a whole in a more impersonal way. And there's actually a natural rhythm. It's been happening inside you right now. And you can become interestingly mindful of it. It's quite interesting to track it. You know, there's a natural movement from, you know, okay, what's relevant to me right now? Typically a a few times a minute, there's this natural rhythm under normal conditions, especially in the visual field. And then there's kind of a popping out, a quick check. Well, what's the total... Uh, environment I'm in or the total situation, more from an impersonal perspective, as if someone's looking from some corner of the room at the situation as a whole, and there's a movement back and forth. That process that moves back and forth relates to the second and third streams of the attentional system, the first of which was alerting. Like I said, that's around the leading edge of the windshield of consciousness. The second is called orienting. The first alerting is something has happened. Second is orienting. Where is it? You need to know that. Squirrels need to know that. These streams are present in the brains of squirrels, mice, monkeys. They're very elaborated in humans. Orienting. Like that's like the second, third of a second. And then there's the mounting of attentional resources toward a response the sort of responding aspect of the attentional system. You're not yet responding, but you're kind of getting ready to respond. You know, do I need to run? Should I grab it? Do I, do I hug it? You know, do I eat it? Do I hug it? Do I hit it? Do I run from it? You know, or do I like appease it and hope it doesn't notice me? Uh, so it's like that, that. And all that's happening really fast, and it's happening continuously during that subjective now, continuously. It's life streaming through us. So orienting and responding, those networks are involved in egocentric processing, 
understandably, because they're about personal relevance. The alerting attention system is entwined with allocentric processing, which basically is a doorway into being one with everything. One with everything. So James Austin's theory, quite plausibly, is that... um, Actually, let me say this first. So where's the switch? Right? Wouldn't it be cool to be able to dial down egocentric processing or dial it up if it's appropriate? Like sometimes people need to have more of a sense of, wait a second here, you know, I've been too giving. I've, my boundaries have been too fuzzy. Uh, I haven't claimed my own seat. I was in New Zealand recently, and it's really quite remarkable the far from perfect, but still re- remarkable compared in my experience to other uh, sort of European or European colonized nations of the world, the involvement of the Maori culture um, with the more Eurocentric culture. And one of the pieces of that that I was taught is this Maori term that essentially has to do with the value of or the importance of a place to stand. We all need our place to stand. So they have areas like for each group, tribe's probably the wrong word, but group, that's their place and it's protected. And individuals need to have their place to stand. In a meeting, you need to have your own place to stand and to claim that place. In some sense, egocentric, I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's like this place. It's in relationship to me. My view matters. My view matters and I'm going to claim that in a wholesome way. I would wish for my friend to claim that. I support my friend to claim that who has a life just like my own. Therefore, it's okay for me to claim that for myself too. There's a place for that. On the other hand, a lot in our practice, we observe the suffering that comes from self-referential processing. Too much claiming, possessing, owning, meing. And we want to be able more, particularly at will, to move more out into this allocentric view, this more oneness view. So it's, it's useful to know something about that switch. The switch is located in a part of the brain called the thalamus. Thalamus, there are two of them, one on each side, um, is a major sensory switchboard. Right? A lot of, uh, most of the information highways that move through the brain, especially in the front end of what's happening, move through the thalamus. And that little switch also is controlled or regulated by a neurotransmitter system that's called GABA, which is inhibitory and calming, tranquilizing. And if you think about it, as soon as we're at all disturbed, bang, we move into egocentric mode, right? This hurts. What am I going to do about it? This is a great opportunity. How am I going to go get it? Something's happening interpersonally. You know, what am I going to do about it? It's self-referential really quickly. On the other hand, the more tranquil a person becomes, the more able they are, understandably, lizard, mouse, monkey, human, to just kind of hang. You know, I think about lizard push-ups in the sun. You know, they're just scanning. Nothing. It's okay. They're being all right right now. They're doing that version of that practice, doing push-ups in the sun. You know? All right. Okay. We're okay. It's all right. We're okay. Um, so. You think about why is tranquility so valued in so many traditions? There are, I think, multiple reasons for that, but I think one of that is that it increases GABA-based activity, including in this um, central switchboard. 
Uh, also, as people train in the alerting function uh, of attention, so they're more at the front edge of consciousness, they build up those networks. And also, as people take care of their basic needs, as you uh, feed the heart, it becomes less hungry. As you cultivate repeatedly safety, satisfaction, connection, authentically, and develop a, more of an abiding in and as peace and contentment and love in terms of those three basic needs, then there's less of a basis for craving. We're not disturbed. We're undisturbed, untroubled, undefended, unthreatening. Those are three words that I engage a lot in my own practice. Undisturbed, undefended, unthreatening. Kind of in that order. Because it's hard to be defend, undefended if you're disturbed or unthreatening. Okay? So, so we practice that as well. The meeting of the needs of the person in appropriate ways and definitely the registering of the all-rightness and the fullness and the connectedness that is actually the case, when it is the case, to the extent it is the case. We internalize that again and again and again. Um, So we're less inclined toward that sense of disturbed egocentrism. And we practice often deliberately things that, you know, help us appreciate how we're interconnected with everything, interdependently arising. We're part of the land, we're part of the whole, we're part of the culture. Um, you know, if, if we harm others, it comes back to us. It's said sometimes that karma is hitting golf balls in the shower. <laughs> in this life or another one, they come flying back. We start recognize we do things to them, it comes back to us. So we deepen our practice in that regard. And then, in Austin's theory, we make ourselves accident-prone to awakening. Normally, there's an oscillation, a rhythm. I'll do it kind of like this, as time goes this way. Egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric. Another detail, if you move your eyes down within, you know, 20 feet or so in close, you activate egocentric processing. If you move your eyes up, approaching the horizon line, the plane, and then up and beyond, you're naturally moving into allocentric processing visually. And probably about a third of the cortex, certainly about a quarter, is involved with visual processing. Um, it's, uh, it's very information processing intensive if you've tried to download movies. Uh, and uh, therefore, if we affect visual processing, as I think it was Wes who said early on, Maybe Anushka, sorry. If you close your, that's why the reason we close our eyes in here to kind of downregulate that busy buzziness, so we can, you know, have a quieter mind and be more aware of what's going on. Um, it's not that we should only practice that way. Many deep traditions keep their eyes open, but there there's some reasons for that. Okay. So my point about all this is that in Austin's theory, um, people train in you know, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, but they train in having uh, steeper, uh, higher peaks of allocentrism through training in the alerting function. I would add training in tranquility, uh, tr- downregulating uh, the basis for egocentric drives, which, in other words, craving, one form or another, 
and uh, develop more of a sense of just interconnectedness with everything, more of a view in that regard, an understanding, even a valuing of that. So their peaks become egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, and then something happens. They get surprised. What happens when you're surprised? Alerting function on steroids. The frog croaked. There's this uh, haiku, I think it goes, it was about um, the, the enlightenment experience, the awakening experience of this Zen practitioner who some, writes something like, full moon in the bucket, the bottom falls out. It literally fell out, this old wooden bucket. And in that moment of the moon disappearing, in the reflected in the water, just imagine sun bouncing off moon, bouncing off water, landing in eyes, boom. Um, bottom falls out. Okay, and at that point, you know, something happens. Often with eyes lifted the, you know, up above the horizon line, allocentric, boom, and then the switch gets stuck on the oneness with everything setting. For minutes, hours, days sometimes, then you gradually come back down, a more balanced perspective, and your life has changed forever. That's Austin's theory of plausibly, neurologically, of why and how Satori happens, and ways that we can cultivate and make ourselves more and more accident-prone. And also not just for, you know, like radical, categorically different Kensho or Satori experiences, but more generally. You know, I've certainly been experiencing this myself. More generally, it's kind of like hanging in allness. So that's the word I use. You start having more of a sense that... Um, what's happening here, to use a familiar metaphor, is like a local wave in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But that momentary swell with its little lace of seaweed and foam, feeling so hot, you know, is just a local expression of the entire planet-girdling oceans. Right? In the same way, this moment of experience is the result of a vast tapestry of causes rippling away through us right now to make this moment. We're a local expression of allness continuously. And as we have more and more of a sense of being that local expression of allness, it becomes, frankly, easier to contemplate, at least in my case, my own death. And also, um, allness itself, much as mind as a whole, allness as a whole, doesn't have a problem. Inside allness, there might be issues. You know, global warming, wars, planets colliding, you know, things happening. Um, But allness as allness itself, as allness, is never disturbed. One of the Buddha's great um, processes was to look for where, look for a reliable basis for lasting profound inner peace. And he, including through mystical training or deep yogic training, kept finding that one thing after another didn't last. It was endlessly changing. Well, allness as allness doesn't change because it's always allness. It's a more reliable basis for lasting inner peace. 
See if you relate to that. And being here on the land is such a beautiful opportunity to feel, you know, and Wes has really inducted us into this a lot, Anushka as well, the sense of our continuity of life. You know, that lizard is my cousin. You know, that lizard's alive and well inside my own mind. You know, hanging out in my brainstem, poking up into my subcortex, having feelings. Recent research shows that crawfish, shrimp, have the neural architecture for anxiety. They do, and they seem to feel the shrimp equivalent of anxiety. I passed a lizard earlier. That lizard's having experiences. That lizard was looking at me. I'm not going to presume what that lizard was experiencing, but that lizard was having some visual process because it skittered away as I got close. And then when I got to a safe distance, it chilled out doing push-ups. Right? <laughs> right? It's continuity. Or as Wes has pointed out as well, um, you know, like what's in our bones right now? The initial universe had no atoms bigger than helium or almost none. You know, two electrons, two protons, that was it, or mostly hydrogen. Uh, take a breath. Oxygen, the nitrogen, the carbon and carbon dioxide, all born in the heart of a star, usually in the moment of its explosion as a supernova. Literally, to drift through space, to form a rocky planet, the iron in our blood, calcium in your teeth, the gold in my ring. I pick up a fork, I think, wow, thank you, stardust. <laughs> Literally. That fork, born in the heart of an exploding star billions of years ago, to land here. Wow. You know? Like, literally, what's the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song? We are stardust, we are golden, something like that. We literally are. Like, continuity. You know, every, we're inhaling the exhalations of trees, and we're, our exhalations are their inhalations. You know, literally. We partake of this whole thing. Um, they're roughly 100 trillion or ish give or take a few, cells in the body, there are probably a hundred times as many little microorganisms living inside us right now. Some of them not so, most of them not particularly harmful, neutral, uh, some of them harmful, many of them beneficial. Think of it, we are a community of cells, a hundred trillion or so, constantly turning over, as well as another quadrillion or so, little creatures, right? We're like a whole city, just flowing, right? Continuously. So, allness. All right? And also the allness of culture, the allness of other people, uh, the allness of the influences upon us, and the allness of deep time, that of all those causes streaming through the ocean to make this now. Then, oneness. This is where it seemed appropriate in a science retreat to take a big breath and start confronting the edges, if you will, if there are edges, to the natural frame of mind and matter. Clearly, we start with experience, which is intangible. It's immaterial. You cannot hold an experience of a sound or a, th- a thought or the knowing that 2 plus 2 is 4. It's, it's immaterial. It's existent. Just because it's immaterial doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right? Information exists, right? including the information that is the experience of the color red or the taste of cinnamon. That information exists, but it's not material. It's represented by 
an underlying material substrate. And then the two interact, especially inside our own mental processes. I'm not going to spend more time on that. But is that all there is? Mind and matter include lots of wild stuff. Conditioned phenomena, um, black holes, quarks, Donald Trump, the whole Megillah, you know. (laughs) It's just all of it, right? Uh, But is that all there is? And, you know, people debate about whether the Buddha referred to or claimed the existence of supernatural or transcendental factors or matters or processes, which by definition are outside the natural frame. Uh, And then a deeper question is, uh, you know, was he right? And the deepest question of all is, does it matter? Right? Or, Or how might it matter? And my own view is that he clearly, as best we can tell from the records that, you know, uh, appeared several centuries after he passed away, uh, he did routinely refer to things like reincarnation or, and devas and realms of existence, uh, supernatural aspects. And he also, usually through negation, routinely referred to the unconditioned, the deathless. And I'd like to read you three quotations from... Um, the Dharma, uh, the Pali Canon, Pali, the language of early Buddhism, Canon, the collection of those teachings, and then uh, bring it down into kind of something practical in practice, and then we'll finish up. So, and I'll, I may, I may paraphrase, or I'll, I'll, I'll comment briefly as I read some of these things. So he says, the entire world is in flames. When he says world, he's really talking about the world of experience. As uh, Richard Gombrich, uh, if you're interested in this sort of stuff, uh, a beautiful book called What the Buddha Thought by this Oxford scholar of Buddhism. It's really, it's readable, you know, a little technical occasionally, but it's really cool. And one of the key points Gombrich makes is that after the Buddha's death, people sort of misinterpreted some of his core teachings, which were clearly that love is a wholly sufficient path of awakening when perfected and taken all the way. And Gombrich's view is that if people had really understood that and engaged that, and it's probably no accident that the leaders uh, of um, um, Buddhism after, in his life and after he died were men. Uh, I think that's relevant. Uh, Gombrich pointed out that if people had been, had been more faithful to the true teachings of the Buddha, there would have been less of a need for the Mahayana correction the emphasis on compassion, and the bodhisattva path. But the takeaway point is, I mean, that might be of some historical interest to some people, but the clear evidence is that the Buddha did talk about love, perfected and um, explored broadly and deeply, is a complete path of awakening. Wow. So, and as Gombrich said, The Buddha was not interested at all in the world per se. He was interested in our experience of the world, including the world of each other. So, the entire world is in flames. The entire world is going up in smoke. The entire world is burning. The entire world is vibrating. Describing phenomenology, experience. But that which does not vibrate or burn 
which is experienced by the noble ones, the enlightened ones, where death has no entry, in that my mind delights. Another quote, O house builder, you are seen. He's talking about the processes that keep constructing the house of the mind, ordinary experience. O house builder, you are seen. You will not build this house again. For your rafters are broken and your ridge poles shattered. My mind has reached the unconditioned. I have attained the destruction of craving. He's clearly talking about something that's outside the field of conditionality, which is not a reliable basis. Anything in the field of conditionality, by definition, is not an enduring, reliable basis for lasting, profound happiness and inner peace. The last quote, the born come to be produced, the made, the conditioned, the transient, conjoined with decay and death, a nest of disease, perishable, sprung from nutriment, feeding, problematic processes, sprung from nutriment and cravings cord, that is not fit to take delight in. The escape from that, the peaceful, beyond reasoning, everlasting, the not born, the unproduced, the sorrowless state that is void of stain, the cessation of states linked to suffering, the stilling of the conditioned, bliss. See what he's getting at there. So is it possible at the edge of the natural frame to have intimations of unconditionality, this side of Nibbana? I'm all for Nibbana. I'm not speaking against it. I'm interested in it. Um, I haven't experienced it. I know people who have, and um, it's real, and it's laid out as a very clear path in many of the Buddhist traditions. When I'm talking about something perhaps more accessible um, in the more beginning or intermediate stages of practice. And here's why I need to explain something about how consciousness works in the brain. So in the brain, there are these networks, all these little synapses, and they're, they're They're representing all the information, all the patterning that forms this moment of experience. This moment of knowing that two plus two is four, this moment of planning what to do after lunch, this sound, the sight, the sensation in the body, all this being represented by the neural substrates of experience. It's still quite mysterious. It's called the hard problem in neuroscience, exactly how the meat makes the mind How does the experience of the color red emerge from these gooey, messy, chemical, mushy-gushy molecular processes? Nobody knows. It's one of the three great mysteries in science. The others being, you know, what caused the Big Bang? Why are we here at all? And what's the grand unified theory that connects basically gravity and quantum mechanics? 
Nobody knows yet. But consciousness is right up there in the big three. So I won't claim that I know because no one really knows. That said, it's clear there's a correlating. There's a a relating between the two. So we have these neural substrates that support this moment of experiencing. And for them to do that, what happens is patterns emerge. Usually takes, you know, a few tenths of a second, a tenth or two for the a few one or two tenths of a second for the pattern to start to emerge to a sound. Then the pattern stabilizes for a while, a few seconds more, and then that pattern, like an eddy in a stream, disperses, and then those synapses become available to represent the next sound, sight, sensation, thought, feeling, desire, and all the rest of that. That's how it works. It's a little bit like if you look at the surface of a glass of soda water bubbling away and then look at it as super slow motion, right? See bubbles starting to form here, comes up, other bubbles coming up over here, a little behind it, over here. These have already popped, the ripples are coming out, they bump into this one. This bubble pops, those bubble pop, bubbles pop, 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 pop. That's like the field of awareness. Pop, 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 pop. But then if you look at the cup sideways, you can see prior to consciousness, including in examinations of neural processing, prior to consciousness, this pattern starting to come up. Again, Anushka talked about that. The first few tenths of a second, getting ready to cross the waterline and become knowable or experienced or known. And then there it is. So you see what we have are patterns. We have like an, a bubble is a pattern in the surface of the water. In the same way, these synapses are quivering with potentiality. They're just waiting to represent something. And we need to have excess capacity in the neural substrates of consciousness for any uh, pattern to be represented. Right? For any sound to land or any new thing to occur, for the lizard and and its nervous system, its neural substrates of its version of experience, there there has to be a kind of readiness. It's interesting that I think Suzuki Roshi also described mindfulness as readiness, mental readiness. There needs to be a readiness for the next percept, the next experience, the next meaningful event to land in awareness. And... That means, therefore, that we need to have a lot of fertile noise. That's, that's how it works. We have a lot of synapses that are waiting to get enlisted in coalitions, but they haven't been yet. So what we have basically in our brain, it's like a whiteboard. We have a lot of unused capacity that can represent anything, and it's just waiting to represent anything. Which means that the neural substrates of consciousness at the front edge of now, continuously, are effectively unconditioned. They're quivering, as I said, with potentialities, fertile noise. They're conditioned in the largest sense. We have this body, we have this nervous system, but in their capacities to represent the next thing, they're not yet conditioned, continuously. And as we start having more and more of an intimation in our own experiencing of this space of possibility, this readiness in the mind, we're aware of content, we're aware of patternings, reductions of entropy, signal, you know, that's coalesced. As an eddy in a streaming coalesces and forms a pattern. 
flotsam and jetsam, a certain patterning. And then, whoosh, disperses. Because we have more and more of a sense of that possibility. I asked my friend once what he thought God was. He said, possibility. I'm not making claims about God here, but there was something about that. It was like a koan for me, bingo. Um, There's always this space of possibility in the emergence of the next instant. And my personal hunch, to finish here, is that when people particularly go through the classic stages in the run-up to Nibbana that are described repeatedly in the suttas, you know, quieting the mind, it starts out steadying the mind internally, quieting it, bringing it to singleness, and concentrating it. Concentration is a code word for the four jhanas, these deep states of, of absorption that progress. And then moving through the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhanas, getting quieter and quieter and quieter, signals are starting to drop out. Applied attention falls away, sustaining attention falls away, bliss and rapture start falling away, the more active forms of joy start falling away. At some point in there, the perceptual perception of uh, the world falls away. Uh, deep, deep stillness, equanimity, and then moving into the so-called four formless jhanas, or the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth in this progress, you know, the base of infinite space, or base of infinite consciousness, infinite space, um, the base of nothingness, the base of you know, neither perception nor non-perception, and then cessation. That's the classic run-up. My hunch is that those who go through that process, the signals fully drop out, or nearly entirely. There's enough keeping them alive. Their heart keeps beating. They come back and talk about it. But um, they're having, at that point, a profound resting in this space of fertile noise, quivering possibility, effective unconditionality. It's effectively unconditioned. And right there, they get an intuition, perhaps, about the nature of material reality altogether, also material reality, on the leading edge of now, where quantum potentiality is continually congealing into quantum actuality. Perhaps because consciousness itself needs to be woven into the fabric of material reality for that to happen, which is an extraordinary possibility. And so people who go through this process, and we can have intimations of it, really, as we get a sense of the space of possibility just prior to the emergence of the next patterning of our experience. The fertile noise of the nervous system is like the, the unconditionality of the nervous system and representing experience is like the quantum unconditionality that is the basis of material reality. They're not the same, but they're like each other. They have the same nature as effective unconditionality, and which allows a person, an individual, to have a profound intuition of their common nature. And then afterward, they seem to, those people who do that, who go there, seem to live in a radical kind of freedom. They're right at the leading edge of now. They have a deep recognition of the openness, the possibility of livingness. They engage life, but 
They're just free, free. In that, their mind delights. I just think this is the coolest stuff. But <laughs> anyway, so bringing it down to planet Earth, you know, and uh, wrapping up. I went long. I thank you for your attention. This is not that easy to follow through in this way. In practice, nowness, coming into the present, then we leave it, then we come back to it, and then it becomes more and more a habit. We train in the capacity to stay right here now. Going out in a wholeness, moving out into sensation as a whole, the body as a whole, experience as a whole, mind as a whole has no problem. Further, allness, you know, allocentric processing, a more impersonal perspective, a sense of being a local expression of allness. And then, a sense of the quivering possibilities of the next moment. May you be well. Thank you. Thank you. May I read what the last passage again? I think that'll be a fitting. Then we'll take a little break, right? And we'll, or a longer break and come back, do some walking maybe. Come back at a quarter to nine. So last here. And I love that this is the Buddha like us. A real body, real, you know, troubled, grappled, you know, went out, practiced, nearly starved to death. Um, he's describing his own process. And there's there's a kind of, for me, joy in, in this. I feel very moved by it, actually. So he says, the born come to be produced, the made, the conditioned, the transient, conjoined with decay and death. A nest of disease, perishable, sprung from nutriment and cravings cord, that is not fit to take delight in. The escape from that, the peaceful, beyond reasoning, everlasting, the not born, not yet congealed into actuality, the unproduced, the not yet conditioned, the unproduced, the sorrowless state that is void of stain, the cessation of states linked to suffering, the stilling of the conditioned, bliss. Let's do some walking and Come back in 15 minutes at a quarter to nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.